to welcome everybody. Uh, we've already welcomed you, but now this is for the recording, so welcome again. Like Kate was saying, we're going to be talking about applying to graduate school and really focusing the bulk of our time on the process and what that looks like. So we'll start by just introducing ourselves and who, who we are. Um, so I, my name is Dustin Harridan, in case you didn't already know that. I did my undergrad at the University of Denver, and I double majored in psychology and philosophy, which are two great majors uh, to really open up your job prospects there. During that time, um, I thought I wanted to continue on to be a psychologist and like go to grad school, but it was my senior year and I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, so I kind of panicked and ended up applying to golf schools where I would be a, uh, I would like train to be a head pro at like a country club or something. And although that sounds great, I ended up taking a course on depression and just really, really wanted to continue doing work in this area. So I did everything I could to get experience and some of the things that we'll talk about later on, just like, what is experience? What does that mean? Um, but I was lucky enough to be involved in a, in a lab. And so I got then brought on as the lab manager there. And throughout this time, like talking to grad students was invaluable. Grad students were really great and helpful. Lots of like searching around and reading. Um, and in my application, I then applied to, I think it was like about eight mentors. There was one school where I applied to two. They were all clinical psych, but because of what I wanted to study was there weren't a lot of people doing that. Uh, I kind of had a limited field to really look into. Um, so looking at the relationship really between sleep processes and psychopathology and youth with now a greater focus on development. And this is weird to say, but I'm, I'm a si sixth year. So that is... That's wild to me. <laughs> this is my sixth year. Um, and this is pretty, pretty normal. Like I'm on track with others in the, the University of Illinois system. Um, so then I have, I will apply for internship. And then after the internship year is when I will be a doctor in clinical community psychology. All right. So this is my uh, <laughs> timeline. And now you're making, I feel like so much less professional. So uh, I made this actually for Dustin's class when he was talking to under, other undergrad or undergraduates about um, different things you can do with a psych degree. Um, I was trying to be funny. So I pulled something from like each year. Um, and so I also am not Bill Clinton, but that was the year I was born and he was president. Um, so also the year Friends uh, was first live whatever um so like a lot of you i think are uh students at cornell so i was a student at cornell from 2012 to 2016. i worked with jane mendel in the adolescent transitions lab um that was more later on when i started undergrad i was like i want to be a clinical psychologist and i actually met with a clinical psychologist um who was working at Gannett and I was like, how do I like become a clinical psychologist if I don't want to do like any stats work? Or like, I just want to be like the idea person. Can that be a career? And he was like, no. Uh, so 
I was like, ah, well, like, I guess I'll, I really wanted to be a clinician, but I wanted to get a degree, a PhD. Um, and if this sounds familiar to you, I think a lot of people in the beginning of the journey, like, it sounds really cool to get a doctorate and um, you want people to sit on a couch um, and listen to you and take their advice. Um, I'm sure most of you know that's not the case now, but yeah, uh, I knew that by the beginning of my freshman year, thankfully. But then um, in order to, I became interested in a summer project in Dr. Mendel's lab, and uh, I suddenly realized that I really liked research. Um, so upon, and I actually, again, really wanted to apply as a senior. Um, we'll talk about this in more detail later, but um, a lot of people were like, oh, like some people get in out of undergrad, but I wouldn't do it. And I was like, you said some people, like I could be some people. And so I applied out of undergraduate and I got waitlisted at University of Maine. And I, I thought that would be like just the worst thing that ever happened to me because I've had a really good life. Um, but instead I um, got a job at the Women's Hormones and Aging Research Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, and so I worked there for two years and in, embedded within a psychiatry department. Um, that was like a really valuable experience because I had been embedded in like a developmental program and psychiatry was a totally different place to be. And the way they ask research questions and the lens they use is completely different. Um, but I also found that I wasn't getting the experience I needed uh, to get into a clinical program. And so I randomly emailed Ben Hankin, uh, principal investigator, and asked if he had any jobs because I really wanted to work for him. And he said, maybe, and then maybe turned into yes, and yes turned into me packing up and moving all the way to Illinois, where I've been project manager until Talia, who's on this call, uh, took over for me. And this is where I met Dustin. Um, this last year, I applied to both clinical and developmental programs, um, and we, again, we can talk about that a little bit since I was still, even after four years, unsure whether I wanted to go clinical or developmental. Um, I got into a clinical program and uh, several developmental programs, and I made the decision that I wanted to just do research and like developmental was not just research, but I wanted to do research and that developmental was really important to me. Um, and so I'm headed back to Cornell. Um, so I might see some of your faces next year uh, via Zoom, but probably not in per person. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's me and my background and how Justin and I hooked up. So really one of the first things that you may be thinking is like asking questions of should you apply? And then after that, you're like, yeah, I'll apply, whatever. And then you think about what are some programs that are right for you. So some questions that you can ask yourself are things like, what do you like to do? What do you want to spend time doing? And one of the things that I really noticed is after you're involved in a, in a lab or maybe in classes that you're in, that there may be particular topics that you find yourself asking more questions about or thinking a lot more about. And those are the, the things that you want to pay attention to and really take note of and focus real on what are these things that you want to do when you move forward. So some of these questions we'll, we'll continue to talk about and like how do you find out what these steps are. Kate, do you have anything to add there? 
Yeah, so um, I think some of you had questions about like how long it takes to get a PhD and um, what like costs are to applying. Um, and I would say that the should you apply, some of that gets answered by having post back experience and some of that gets answered by your time in undergrad. Um, I was someone who, again, as I mentioned before, uh, was like, I should apply, I should definitely apply and kind of went about it before I felt like now in like retrospect before I had a good like like grounding about what a clinical degree and what any PhD in psychology is involved with. Um, so just like the amount of years, um, four is the absolute minimum. And I remember hearing that and being like, yeah, I could do it in four. But I think once you're actually in a program, a lot of people feel like they want a fifth year, they want a sixth year. Um, in order to like apply the skills that they're gaining to give themselves a better chance in the job market. Um, and it is such an adjustment into grad school. So um, I'm sure Dustin could talk a little bit more about this, but just the amount of time and um, that it even takes to get there and the costs, which we'll um, get into more, both monetarily and personally, um, is it's no small venture. So uh, if you want to, go into this, then I, I think you should spend some time thinking about um, what trajectory you want for your life and um, how a PhD or going after a PhD might impact that. Yeah, I think clinical psych programs are particularly lengthy uh, when compared to other PhD programs in psychology. Um, just because one of the things is that there is a year of internship right after that you have to complete um, so it's like uh, you could think of it as a residency where you go and you do clinical work for a year and then you apply for postdoc positions so this is after your your PhD you get another position where you're doing uh, some more advanced things potentially um, and really all it is is you're building up this case for applying to the job market like what Kate was saying is a lot of times you're, you're wanting to apply these skills and get more experience in order to, to be like, to be competitive on that job market. Um, and if you realize like we can spend more time towards like, as we go and talking about what are the differences between all these programs um, and that, that can really help where you want to go. Uh, so if maybe taking a different approach where you don't have to spend six or seven years, that's usually about the time for a clinical PhD. If you don't want to spend that time and you just want to practice or you just want to do other things, um, then there may be other programs that would be better suited for you. Yeah, so just to talk a little bit about those programs, um, Justin's actually a really good person to do it because he is uh, clinical and clinical, you kind of see the other sides. Um, I can talk a little bit about my decision to do clinical versus developmental. But first, I know some people had questions about what's the difference between a PhD and a PsyD. Um, so Justin, I want to throw that at you if you want to say PsyD versus PhD versus MS. Like, what are the what, what do you get out of it and what um, do you have to give, what time do you have to invest to get it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think usually when you think of, oh, I want to be a therapist and that may be something that you're particularly interested in. You want to do therapy with people and each one of those degrees, starting with like a, a PhD in clinical psychology, a PsyD, or potentially an, uh, 
like a master's, most likely in social work, uh, so an MSW, those are gonna allow you to, to practice therapy. Um, the amount that your time will be spent doing those things is what's gonna vary. For example, in a clinical PhD program, that can be a very small portion of what you're actually doing. Uh, a lot of PhD programs in clinical psychology are focused more on the research and wanting you to apply yourself in a, like a methodological or a statistical or really being able to produce research. That's, that's their top priority for the majority of clinical psych PhD programs. Of course, there might be some that have more of a split or more of a balance, but most of them uh, that you think of at what is called like an R1 university, so like a very research heavy university, those are gonna be more focused on research with very little focus on applied. And when I say applied, that's like clinical work, that therapy side. That doesn't mean though afterwards, if you wanna do therapy, you can, you can go on internship, you can get your hours, and then you can, you can practice. Like that doesn't limit you at that point. It's just the training that usually comes into play for a clinical PhD program is gonna be more focused on research and less so on practice. Whereas a PsyD, um, the majority of, uh, again, are gonna be the flip of that, where the, they will focus more on you getting hours, you doing therapy and really practicing that skill there are some that have more of a balance towards like doing some research and doing therapy, but most of it is gonna be focused on therapy. Uh, one of the other big differences that I wasn't aware of when I first started thinking about my life after undergraduate was that the majority of clinical psych PhD programs are funded. So that means you don't have to pay anything out of pocket other than maybe like pieces of your soul or things like that. That is chump change though. Whereas PsyD programs you have to pay for. Uh, and usually that can be very costly. Uh, then when it gets into, so like master's programs, um, I'll focus on master's in social work. That allows you to do therapy. You're able to practice, um, but the cases are gonna be a little bit more limited in what you can see. Yeah, and we can have future talks where we go into detail about that. Um, it's also, I think, just like worth saying that there's a real benefit to reaching out to people who have those degrees um, in your social circles or which is like less likely um, or just sending an email. I, I think that everyone in this field, my impression has been anyone I've ever reached out to has been like really warm. If you're coming from a genuine place of like, it looks like you're doing really interesting work. Can you tell me about it and how you got to where you are? Um, and I, you know, haven't gotten really any of those emails because no one really wants to be me yet, um, but working on it. Uh, but I think it's really, I would imagine it's really gratifying to hear that people are interested in what you're doing. And so um, I think if people don't want to respond, they won't respond, but there's no harm in asking uh, someone who's a clinical PhD versus someone who's got a non-clinical psych PhD. Um, or there's even, just to bring up one more, uh, if you're interested in like the data science side of things, you can get a master's in um, like statistics or data science. And that actually can open up a lot of doors 
and just if you have any questions you can ask them in the chat but i do want to address one question i know someone posted which is um is there any benefit to doing a master's um so the answer for people who were um are psych majors tends to be no um there are a few cases where that um doesn't apply um and if uh you know if you are a psych major and um potentially you're trying to stay in the U.S. to continue to be a student. Um, there can be some visa situations where that might be a good move for you. Um, I'm not going to over-speculate um, into other reasons people might do it, but just to say, like, on its own, a master's in psychology that's not, like, a master's in counseling um, or, like, an LCSW or an MSW, just an MS in psychology, um, it doesn't get you really anywhere. Um, there's not a huge job market for people with masters in psychology. Um, it can be potentially a leg up in getting into grad school, but I think the drawback is you do have to pay for that. They tend to come, like they tend to not be funded, um, and you're going to get a master's along the way as you do a PhD. Um, so you could get a cool, like, get to be an MAMA or like a mama, but other than that, uh, <laughs> there are, you know, just there's the financial costs. So just wanting to be sensitive to that. Um, I made the decision to, I didn't, I had no um, desire to pay for a master's program. And so for me, um, it wasn't really a decision point, but I know some people are deciding between master's and post-bac experience. And um, I think post-bac experience can be really valuable if that's for you. And that brings us to our next slide. Yeah. So as you can tell, Kate and I can talk about this for a very long time. Um, so I'm going to put her on the spot and say that we are both open to getting questions later on to like, you can use us as a resource. Um, because this, like, although everyone after the fact seems to know all of these things, there's never really kind of like paying it back. Uh, and so we want to make sure that's kind of one of the goals of us doing these meetings and having having this these talks is to make sure that everyone is is well informed with with what they want to do moving forward. And we're happy to be like connections to other people. Mm -hmm. If you have a question, we'll do our best to connect you to someone who might have the answer. But um, I remember when I was at Cornell, um, professors gave this talk, and just the application process is very different from ten years ago and even five years ago. So um, we kind of think there's a benefit to having recent applicants like me, also George, um, and then near recent applicants like Dustin, who are through the process as um, guides and people who can answer your questions. So um, getting experience. So um, Dustin, if you want to talk a little bit about what you think about getting experience and what you <laughs> Yeah. So I think when it comes to, to getting experience, it, it can be very beneficial to taking time off from being a student. Uh, this was something that Kate had mentioned earlier, but it, it can be very difficult to come straight from undergraduate to applying for graduate school. That does happen, like Kate was saying, that there are some people that, that can do that, um, but it can be very exhausting and draining because you are just continuing as a student while things are shifting to you now being a researcher. And I think we both agree that taking time off when you can, hence the little alarm clock that we put on there, <laughs> uh, is it's good to have that, that break. Um, you're able to then look at other experiences 
if you're a post back, you're able to talk to other graduate students and get a better sense of the land before jumping into a single program. And we talked a little bit also about like getting a master's that it, it can be beneficial in some, some specific aspects, but on the whole, uh, it is gonna cost money to do these, whereas getting the same, maybe not as directed experience like you would in a master's program, but as a post-bac, you do still gain a lot of experience in getting to interact with faculty members potentially or other graduate students even though it's within one single program, you get a better sense of what, what's kind of going on. Uh, I think also what was really helpful for me is just understanding the process as a whole uh, was really eye-opening. Um, I'm a first-generation college student and a now graduate student, and so I had no idea what to expect. I had assumed that applying for graduate school was the same thing as applying for undergrad and you write like an essay about how uh, like this one class changed your life and you couldn't see yourself doing anything else. And so you have to go to graduate school. You get a letter of rec from a professor and you're good. Um, but there's a lot more to it and I, I had no idea. And then, but getting this experience and being able to have that time as a postback, I was really able to understand it a little bit more and get a sense of what directions I could go in, what were things that I liked, what were things I didn't like, uh, and then continue to, to really expand my interests and understand how to organize things. I think that's also a big piece that I've continued to, to really enjoy, um, but I don't think I would have been able to, to identify that until I was in this post-bac. So Kate, what else do you have to say on getting yeah. experience. So for me, I have a, from like two levels, there's the being a strong applicant level, which I have a within person study N equals one of. And then I also have a, um, you know, science nerd joke for you. Uh, no one's laughing, that's okay. I'm gonna assume it's because the mute is on. Um, but yeah, and then like also just like personal reasons. So to start with the less exciting, but personal growth reasons, um, I was really tired after, a million years of school. Um, so 16 years of school, especially at like difficult undergraduates or where you're like really, you know, you're struggling um, to get that perfect GPA to like check all the boxes that you feel like are important to check. That's like really exhausting. And there's a different, it's a different type of exhausting to have a full-time job. Um, but it's also like really eye-opening it's also the first time it was the first time in my life where I didn't have homework when I finished the day and um that was kind of amazing like I would go home and I my time was my own and that was my like first two years especially in Boston was a really really fun time in my life where I got to live a little like have a little more fun like I had I was making a very small amount of money but I could occasionally spend it and um it was a really fun time and Illinois was also fun. So no shade to Illinois, but um, uh, that was really helpful for me. It also gave me like adult, hard adult skills that I think you don't quite, not everyone, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I did not get an undergraduate because you do kind of have a protected space to like learn and grow at your own pace, which is magical and wonderful. And I hope everyone gets that. 
but also like being on your own. And um, I'm someone who came from a lot of privilege, but like earning money on my own and having that opportunity and spending 40 hours of week, a week, like doing something. Um, eight hour days are exhausting when you don't have breaks in between classes. Um, that was all, all really good for my work ethic. And it was also really good for organizational skills. So from a more um, objective, applying to grad school thing, um, people see your undergraduate lab experience as good, but it doesn't get the same weight, I believe, as post-bac experience. Um, now, if you're someone who like needs to not take a job in a research lab, that's something you can talk through and like get experienced in other ways. But if you are able to apply to research labs, that can really strengthen your application if you're planning on going into a research degree. Um, if you're planning on going into more clinical work, you can do a clinical, you can do a job that's more clinical in nature. Um, additionally, like if you're looking for a mix, you can find a job that does that as well. Um, in my first job in a psychiatry lab, I was seeing participants and like running drug studies. And then in my second job, I was doing more data cleaning and like very simple analysis. Um, and I also had the opportunity to learn how to do clinical interviewing. And what I found is even if I liked people and I liked talking to people, overall, I didn't enjoy the clinical aspects as much. And so that helped me figure out what I wanted to do. And so um, it helped refi refine my research interests. So when I was applying, I felt like I was a strong applicant. Um, I knew what I wanted to get out of my graduate experience. Um, and then also finally, it just gives you letter writers. And so having letter writers is no small thing. Um, we'll talk about that again um, further on when we're discussing this. But um, when you're applying, you want people who know you and who know your work ethic and know how you think as a scientist and potentially a clinician. And having people in like a workspace evaluate you on that um, can be very helpful. So. I personally find that super valuable and just um, as a time in my life it was it's been a really great four years um, and even though I didn't want to I, did, I wanted to go straight to a graduate program um, not having that happen was a fantastic thing to happen for me um, oh it also gives you a good opportunity to meet a lot of people in different areas so it's just uh, I hate the word networking but um, that's the most applicable word but you get the chance to um, meet people, uh, take advantage of like whatever institution you're at. Um, I think in my first job, I did a bad job um, reaching out to people because I was nervous <laughs> about them like not wanting to talk to me or being too busy. Uh, and that's something I regret. In my second job, I think I uh, took advantage of the opportunities a lot more um, and the people around me. And also if you had to work with graduate students, um, Dustin and all the graduate students in my lab, uh, were absolutely critical for me refining my research interests. And they also were the group of people who looked over my statements, gave me advice, um, told me about PIs who I may or may not want to apply to, um, like if they were a good personality fit, um, and had like insider info that I think was very helpful and that PIs or professors who have been in programs and have been at their institution for a while don't have. And you get to make money and negotiate salary. Sorry, that's the final thing. Um, and if you are someone who is negotiating a salary for your first job, then you can reach out to me and I can give you advice. Um, for t I don't want to like speak to, you know, like research shows that like women have a harder time getting what 
the salary that they deserve. And there are a lot of reasons why that's the case. Um, but if it's a matter of like figuring out how to ask for what you deserve, that's something I can both help with and have you guys learn from my mistakes with. Um, and it's not just open to women, but um, if that's something that you're going to do in the next year, you are also welcome to reach out to either Justin or I to talk about that, Justin or me to talk about that. Yeah, I think when it, when it came to getting the research position as like a lab manager, project coordinator, it's always like, it can be very nerve wracking to think of yourself as like, oh, I deserve this much money or this, this type of salary, but it is, it's critical and it, it can be very beneficial for you to really think about that, look at other areas. And uh, I would definitely take Kate up on that offer. I have advice and emails and wording. So <laughs> learn from me and um, applying to grad school could cost a lot of money. So you want to take every penny you can get. And now on to kind of the process of what this all looks like. So some of you may be very familiar with this because you just went through it. Uh, some of you may be like, why are there different color arrows? What is going on? Uh, that's because Kate decided to color code it, but it looks really, I really like it. And I was really excited to see, to see the process laid out the way that it is. Um, so this is just like an, an overview of things um, with going from, there's really these two phases where first you're getting all of your application material together, getting it in, submitting it, and that's that first finish line. And then that second one is where you start to like field all of the emails that you're getting, getting interviews, scheduling interviews and doing all that. And I think we'll, we'll walk through this a little bit like step-by-step step in these next few slides. So no need to, to memorize this or draw it for yourself or we'll, we'll send you a copy. You'll get all of these things. <laughs> No, um, we'll have, we'll also like, uh, so two, two things. I didn't put Jerry in this because it's a little further back. Um, and we're going to talk about changes for 2021 slash potential future changes that may or may not be awesome. Um, and, uh, but just to say other than that, um, and we're also going to talk about phone interviews later on in like a month or two. Um, but we just figured the first part is like a giant chunk in itself and we didn't want this to be a two hour thing. So um, we're going to focus on finish line one, just like you should be if you're planning on applying this year, and then finish line two, we'll say for a later date. So these were some of the changes that Kate was kind of alluding to, that there's been talks about this, and there are some, some areas or some colleges that are outright saying that they're not, they're going to be waiving things. Um, and it seems like for the most part, GREs are, and there's a big, uh, like discussion around the GRE in general, um, but it seems like there are programs that are just completely waiving the GRE, which can be helpful. Kate, you said maybe take the GRE. What were you thinking there? Yeah, so um, for those of you who are newer, um, Twitter's a great research resource for upcoming researchers and clinical people. Um, I've always been like, ugh, no, GRE. Um, but I saw something that someone posted, so I just, um, that changed my like no to a maybe, which is um, for some people who don't have the um, time or like financial ability to take a post back job if it's lower paying, then um, or for whatever reason they don't have enough lab experience, uh, taking the GRE might help them if they if you think like if that's you and you think you would do well on the GRE, 
and you're willing to like spend some money on that, um, then that could be good for you. Or if you have a lower GPA and you want to bolster that with an excellent jury score, that could also be helpful. Um, but again, your applications are going to be looked at holistically. So if you have a letter writer touch on why your GPA might be a little bit lower, something like that, that could be equally helpful. The psych jury, some programs re require it. Um, and I was like really adamant about not paying extra money for a psych jury. Um, and so I didn't apply to some programs because they required it. They also weren't like really, um, I wasn't like super excited about the program. So that was an easy sacrifice to make. Um, but if you do end up taking it, um, they only offer it three times a year. So you have to be really uh, mindful of when you sign up for it. So um, check that out if it's something you want to take. But I think a lot of programs are moving away from requiring it. And it's like wicked expensive. It was. And you send scores after three. They have to make you. Pay, they make you pay. And I got to do a huge. I've been emailing them for months because I can't let this go. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but $27 per score that you have to send to the program. $27, they are non-for-profit. I'm willing to go public with my hatred of the GRE. Um, tell everyone <laughs> I'm ready to fight them. Um, but $27 you send, so when you go, you wanna have a list of three programs because um, they'll send your first three test scores, but you have to send them from the test location for free. After that, $27, gone forever, for them to electronically send a score. Absurd, sorry. And to, and to take the GRE, how much was it? Well, it was 300, was it $300? I'm, wow, I'm like mad all over again. Um, yeah, I took it twice. I regret taking it the second time. Um, as strong anti-GRE feelings. Um, but needless to say, if you don't have to take it, I would highly recommend not doing so. And it, yeah, it keeps getting more expensive. It, it feels very ridiculous in being, a, being like studying for it. And it doesn't really uh, predict anything in specifically psych graduate school. I think graduate school more broadly, um, but I know that it doesn't really predict how well you're gonna do in a psych like research program. Um, feelings either way. I strongly feel you shouldn't pay $300 because that's a barrier. They do offer waivers for some people, but not enough people. Mm -hmm. And same with costs for submitting applications that I know that some universities will, uh, that they'll waive them. There will be waivers for the application process, but I don't think, I don't think it's a standard thing across. I'm not sure though. Yeah. So, um, I, I think it's a, it might be a small number, we'll see. Um, I think, you know, pressure from a lot of programs to do so is gonna um, increase this year. Um, I do think with an increased like sensitivity to people's economic situations that should have happened years ago, but it's just happening now, um, is uh, gonna help if you are someone, you shouldn't have to explain your financial situation um, and so that's another thing I find very frustrating. However, um, you can always email programs and ask, and a lot of times they're going to say, yeah, okay. Um, I did that, I think, for two programs because the sheer cost of applying to everything. Um, things can range between being 50. I think the lowest, the cheapest place was $50 for me. The most expensive was 110 which 
110, they should give you like a free t-shirt or something. Um, but yeah, so uh, you can always ask and email someone. Um, and I know for those who are at Cornell that they allow you to send your 200, oh, sorry, update from someone, $205, take the jury in the US. Absurd. Um, but yeah, um, the actual, uh, I lost my thought. Oh yeah, so Cornell, you can send transcripts for free, which is a really awesome thing the university does. Um, I know most universities, there's a cost for sending those transcripts. So all in all, it can cost anywhere from $1,000 to $3,000 to apply. Um, and so you're gonna, be, you're gonna want to save during your uh, post-bac years to do so. Um, but also it's just, um, it's very expensive. And so that is something that Justin and I really are hoping will change in the years and we're trying to be more vocal about, but that is a reality. And I don't think that was stressed enough when I was an undergraduate and when I was thinking about applying. The great news is interviews are online. Um, so for the majority of programs, unless something drastic changes. Um, so previously they were in person and um, most programs only do a partial refund if they refund you at all for travel expenses. Um, but that's a huge chunk of change. And so hopefully that will not happen to you. Anything to add, Justin? No, I, <laughs> I just get, I get frustrated with all of this. And I, I think, um, finances are always a barrier for almost everybody. And so by having these, these hoops that people have to jump through in order to just apply when they are equally as, as like ready to, to do so, I, it just, it's frustrating. And I hope that a lot of the developments that are being put in place right now will continue after um, the pandemic. And just like moving forward, I, I don't know why these these aren't the case. So we'll we'll move on to so I so we, neither of us get too frustrated and then like get in trouble with ETS. Isn't that who does the GRE? I want to get in trouble with ETS. Sorry, I I strongly feel ETS needs to go down. I hope I I would like to be have a hand in their destruction, but I hope everyone who works for the company can find gainful employment elsewhere. Um, but anyway, I'll let you start after. Well, I've heard that they've done uh, good things for test development. That was one of the things I saw on Twitter is how, how they developed the, the measures and how it then is applied to other things, which is helpful, but. Yeah, that's cool. Um, <laughs> I'll look into that. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, so now you're, maybe we've convinced you or not, or you already thought, hey, I should apply. Um, Kate has done a really nice job. She has, you can see there's a, an image here. This was one that she actually was, was using in organizing like places to apply and mentors to apply to. But one of the things that you wanna do is to first see who is doing work, like who's doing the things that you're reading. Maybe you're in a lab and you realize that a lot of things that you're reading that you're interested in all have a similar author. Um, and that could be either a first author or an anchor author, meaning the last author on the paper. But you wanna just start keeping tabs on who's doing things that you enjoy reading or that are focused on topics that you really like. And then you can look at like how much overlap then do they have with things that you're interested in or your own experiences, what experiences do they offer that you're interested in? 
maybe it's you really want to start doing brain imaging and you want to make sure that they have expertise in that and how that they can do how they can um, promote your interests as well and I think this last point is really important is first you cast a really wide net and look at lots of different people so as you're reading I think it would be helpful to start keeping track of what are papers that you like and who are the authors on it and then you can start seeing okay over time that you'll see that like maybe one author really stands out and so you start looking at their work um, go look at their website look at their CVs add them to the list and just kind of keep that going um, and then you'll eventually tailor it down and get get a smaller list of people that you'll actually apply to. One of the things that was a surprise to me, at least when like thinking about grad school, was really the fact that you apply to to one person, um, and that's that's the main person you're applying to work with a mentor. And then oftentimes the school itself is secondary. Um, Whereas that is, you are applying to the school in undergrad, that it doesn't matter really who the professors are there, uh, you're applying to the school, but then it's flipped in graduate school because you're working under a single mentor for the most part. So that's why in this spreadsheet, you see that there's a list of all of the mentors and a list of all the schools. Um, and really the, you have the school there so that you can, you know which website to go to. Um, but really it's who are the people that I should be applying to. Yeah, and um, the program like is a consideration and that'll happen with your interviews and like when you hear about funding and opportunities available. But as far as like um, your own, both chances of getting in and actually like what do you wanna spend time on um, is like if you just apply to a mentor because you wanna be at like, I really wanted to live in Boston, but there was only one program there that was a good fit for me. So I had to say goodbye to my Boston days. Um, and so uh, people, if they look at your application, they're like, why is this person applying to me? Then they're just going to kind of move you off their list. And that's not to be mean. It's because they're going to invest a lot of time in their own expertise in you. And so you are an investment of their own resources. And so they wanna invest and make you their like mentee and protege and have you make them look good. Uh, and so you want someone who is excited by you and the work you are planning on doing. Um, and also just to note, so I um, will share afterwards a folder with a bunch of resources, which um, you'll see George put in the chat, uh, resources from Mitch Princeton. So we have those in there as well as some others that we found on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, but I'll also include the document I used um, for organizing my own, like who I'm applying to and I have different tabs for different parts. Um, so you're welcome to copy that for your own. I'd ask that you don't keep my like notes and things um, just cause they're my personal notes um, and nothing bad, but um, in case I put something dorky in there, I don't want it spreading. Um, and you can kind of edit as like makes sense for you. I really like color coding all of my spreadsheets. And so um, I did started with this one for who would make it to the next list of who is accepting students. And a lot of these people looking back and like, oh yeah, definitely that's why, that's why even though they were taking a student, I left them off. Um, and 
there are people now who I'm like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that I wanted to apply um, to them. But yeah, um, even if you want to go to a certain program, I would also say that uh, program reputations for grad school are very different from undergraduate repu uh, reputations. So um, I'm not going to give any program names as an example, but <laughs> that would be bad. Um, but a program like that- this one, this one sucks as an undergrad, but it's great for graduate school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but like they're like, the best, um, the best universities um, for like the most highly rated clinical psych universities might not hit the uh, highest rated. And part of that is just like problems with the system in general. Um, but also it's just don't get too caught up in the legacy of your um, college or university. Um, some people who aren't familiar with clinical psych, they'll give you bad advice or a psych in general. Um, don't be like me coming back to Cornell, um, you know, was the process of me really liking the person in the program and divorcing it from the reputation. Um, and I think, you know, other people outside of the psych world won't see that, but that's just something to be mindful of. So now really focusing on that first part of, so we're in July, August right now. It's good to, to reach out. And this is how you're, you're starting your mentor list of that, that big broad net of who, who you're interested in and then starting to narrow it down. Uh, one of the first things that you can do is to uh, check websites to see if people are even taking students. And then when you do identify a mentor who is taking a student um, or their website is like out of date because it says we're taking a student for fall of 2018 and you're like what is going on um, but you can reach out you can send an email and I think Kate has a really nice uh, example here that you just want to keep it short you want to keep it simple attach your CV really from what I've been told and what what seems to make sense is you're really just putting your name on their radar so that then when they're looking through applications, they notice, oh, this person emailed me. Let's put them in this pile or something like that. Um, so really just like getting yourself out there, reading something, having like a single line in there, two lines that say how you are interested in a specific project that they're working on or if you have a question, um, but really try to keep it short. Yeah, and it can depend on what information you have about them. And this particular person, um, I thought we had a decent overlap, but not the most overlap of programs. And so um, I figured, like, uh, this was a later on email that I sent. Um, but if you have a specific question about their work um, that is not answered on their website, make sure you're not asking them a question that's really easily avail available. Um, but uh, if, for example, if they don't list whether they're able to take a student or not, um, you can ask them that. Um, but uh, otherwise, it's just, again, like putting their, your name on their radar. And it won't, you know, like make sure you write a good email. Um, that might hurt your chances. Probably won't a lot. But um, it can lightly help your chances if you, um, or if they're really excited about you. Um, it's also just a fun part to hear back from people um, in that for me it was like really motivating. Um, I had one pre-application, this is pretty rare, but I had one pre-application phone call that went really well and that was a big confidence booster. Um, 
And then I also, um, and again, I don't think that'll happen in most cases, but I also had this great email exchange with one um, PI where not only did she tell me more about her research, but we kind of talked about what my interests were. And it just turned out to be this really interesting discussion that I didn't expect. Um, but you might not get that. Most people are just gonna either not respond. Um, ben, who I ended up working for when I applied in undergrad, didn't respond to my email. I was like, rude. Um, but then uh, I talked to him now that I was employed by him. He was like, yeah, no, I'm sure I responded. But they get a lot of those emails, so don't be offended or don't worry if you don't hear back. And again, it helps if there's someone you're actually genuinely interested in because that will shine through your email. So yeah, now you have your list and what are you gonna do next? So really keeping your information, I think organization is really key to this process because all different schools um, will have different application portals and will have different things, even though you're submitting the same thing every single time. So trying to have these templates of your information that you can just copy paste. You don't have to worry about uh, like when you're sending an email, have the same email template and then you can change things. Make sure you do change things. Um, I got the gender pronouns wrong on one of my applications and that was interesting, but it worked out. Uh, and so having these, just having these organization, organizational tools can be really helpful. Um, getting those statements together, seeing which universities require which ones. Some have a diversity statement. I think more and more are, are going to have that. Um, but getting drafts together, starting that early in the process and having people within your lab who know you and who know the area to read them. Um, I think that can be really helpful. And then just staying on top of your letter writers. Uh, a lot of times they'll have a lot on their plate so having reminders kind of let them, well, first, how do you choose letter writers, Kate? So how did you choose your letter writers? Yeah, so you should choose people who are in the field or in a related um, field to the one you're applying to. So um, for example, like uh, if you are really close to your English professor, this is another mistake you can learn from. Um, one of my English professors, when I applied out of undergrad, um, I had him write it because he was well known in the English world. And his letter is very funny and not super enlightening for my career and potential as a researcher. Um, they should also, I was like really worried about asking people who I knew, which is why I did that. I didn't feel like I um, had, a, had three people like go to if you don't have three people like as your go-to letter writers who feel like they know you well, then maybe you need a few more years um, or a year more of experience. Um, I remember when I first like became kind of concerned about that, um, I felt like I didn't know any professors at Cornell and I wasn't going the extra mile. So what I did, I made it a goal for myself to like develop relationships with professors and people um, who could help either mentor me or like guide me. And so I started being that person who sat in the front of class and like raised my hand and potentially annoying other students, um, not asking like annoying questions, but like asking questions that I actually wanted answers to. Whereas before I might've been too like scared or shy to ask. Um, and also like reaching out to people in a polite and professional way, asking um, 
questions and so after that or you get your assigned advisor in college so that's a great person to develop a relationship with um set up regular meetings with them once or twice a semester that can be really valuable and then they get to know you um and so when they ask you it shouldn't be out of nowhere and when you do ask them regardless of how well you know them you might um send them they might ask or you'll want to send them a cv um, any publications or posters that you've done um, and also your personal statement so they know what you're applying to and the information is consistent um, because you might have last time you talked to them you'd have been like i'm totally clinical and then they write you this beautiful statement about how you have all of these clinical skills and you decide you're only applying to research programs this didn't happen to me but i was worried it might and so i had a clear conversation with the people who were writing my letters that this is what i was planning on doing have a bunch of people look at your personal statements and your diversity statements um, there's kind of two things you need to keep in mind with that is everyone's going to have their own opinion so making sure you have your own voice is really strong like a strong personal voice is good um, so you're going to balance between getting a lot of feedback and making it a strong statement with too many cooks in the kitchen um, and having confidence in who you are and like what you want to do is a good balance for that because um, i took a lot of the advice that people gave me but every once in a while a little bit was saying like no i'm going to keep this in there because i feel strongly about it and i see that we're we're kind of at our time we still have a few more slides um so if you can stick around that's great we're gonna save space to to ask questions too um but that's okay if you need to hop off we'll be we this is recorded so you can take a look at it later i uh, just wanted to make sure that we were all aware of things um and yeah one of the the things that i think really stands out is that this is a long process uh so really trying to have those organizational tools in place before you get started so that they don't fall apart halfway through or you're trying to organize trying to put all these different things together and like well this is over here this is on this thumb drive this is on google drive this is on my laptop is on my PC and so trying to have a, a central location can be really helpful like a central location for your data and all of your statements and things like that um, but now like in this October time period this is where you're fine-tuning things and really like what Kate was saying is you're getting a lot of feedback from people but still making sure that that central voice is yours and what you want to say and what you want to convey in these statements. Um, because this is what the, your potential advisor will be seeing is this personal statement, your maybe GRE scores, getting your transcript and really trying to piece together who you are as a person. So making sure that you have that central voice. Um, and then, yeah, this bottom part is, is really important. Who are the people that are close to you? that are supportive, uh, that you can lean on either personally or through this process, just what are some ways that you can support yourself because it is a long, long process. Yeah, I using the grad students, not using, relying on the grad students around, I've used them and now I'm not gonna be friends with them anymore. Um, ha having the grad students in the lab I was working in supporting me was really, really helpful and they got me to the finish line, both of them. Um, and also I linked up and 
one of my close friends is actually from my undergraduate lab in Dr. Mendel's lab. And she and I were applying together. We had had a really similar kind of timeline for applying and rejections and so on. Um, so leaning on each other and like setting up a phone call and being, having each other to commiserate with, but not co-roommate with, was really helpful. And so um, that's like, it sounds cheesy and it sounds like something, but it's like a number one tip. Like don't just like go into isolation until you finish applications. That's sad and not fun. And then your, like come November, this is when things are starting to, uh, like you're finalizing everything, you're getting it all together. This is where you're really wanting to make sure that you give yourself enough time so that you can have the space to finalize these things. Uh, you want to just make sure that you have the correct school names <laughs> in where they should be or the correct PI names in all of your letters or things like that. This is when you can also check in with your letter writers again, send a very nice short email. Um, I'm sure that they, if they may be writing lots of other letters, so just checking in with them uh, in your initial email when you ask about who you can have for a letter writer, it might be helpful to say, and I will check in with you on these dates just to make sure so that you're all on the same page and that they, will be, they won't be surprised if they get an email from you on that time. Uh, and then sending, sending everything out, making sure that your transcripts are getting out when they need to, uh, or if you need to send scores or things like that, but really still taking breaks. I think Kate highlighted it really well. That I, I also don't think that I could be where I am without the support of the grad students in the lab that I was in. Uh, They're like invaluable. And then also your, your maybe significant others, uh, family, like just checking in with them uh, too, because they might, they also might see you as like being really stressed or overwhelmed, but don't want to bother you because you want to focus on finishing these things, but it is okay to take breaks. It definitely is okay. And you should. Yeah. And just um, with the letter writers, um, it's really okay to bother them politely. Um, I'll bring this up in the last slide, but um, a lot of times when you apply, when you send out, so the way the portals work, it'll send them an invitation letter. And I would suggest doing it all at once. So they see it all at once um, and give them a week or two to submit those. Um, it is a like time consuming process for letter writers. Um, the system is bad. Uh, and that's another thing we could talk about for two to three hours, but we won't. Um, but it puts a lot of like, it, it is a lot of work for your letter writers. And so being appreciative, but also being like, Hey, I need this in because my future depends on it. No pressure. Um, but nicely and not saying those words, um, it's fine to do. And then you've reached the finish line. Hopefully you have, you will, and it will be okay. Um, that, yeah, like, like Kate was saying, it's okay to just check in with your letter writers, ask them if there's anything else that they need from you, um, wrap up those last few applications, and then you're, you're at that first finish line. So definitely this is a time to celebrate. This is a time to really reflect on things and, and like check in with yourself and really be able to take a break, take a breather, do something that you really enjoy uh, and this might be something you set up before you even start applying that you're like, all right, come December 5th, then I'm going to do, I'm going to binge the whole season of whatever show you want to watch uh, so that you have that. 
but then like celebrate with other people too, as much as you can in this new, whatever world we're in where you have to socially distant, but distance, but celebrate. This is, this is you, you did a great thing. Celebrate the little milestones. This is a big one though. Um, and that's actually a live picture of the members of the Yeti lab carrying me across the finish line, December 1st, 2019. <laughs> I think, yeah, so we can open it up to questions. What we might do is if anyone has any questions, um, now you can ask them, you can take yourself off mute. Um, otherwise we'll launch into like just maybe like three or four and the rest we'll address in a blog post that we'll send to you. Um, but does anyone have any questions like right off the bat that they want to ask? Yeah, I was just wondering after undergrad, did you guys, um, like apply directly to the labs right when you graduated and like, when did you start those jobs and how long did they last before you went to grad school? So, uh, for me, I... So uh, I applied to some programs my senior year and was waitlisted. So I had a backup option because I knew there was a chance I wouldn't get in. Um, so I applied to post-bac uh, like labs um, and reached out to a bunch of people. And if anyone has any questions about that, I can email you responses. Um, my, in like January, February um, and that, you know, that early spring semester because that's right around when people find out they're going to be leaving um, to start grad school. So you have all of these post-bac openings and then you have time to kind of figure out what works for you. And then I think I accepted a job in April. And then, so after that, I spent two years in Boston, as I mentioned before. And then my most recent job at Illinois, um, I just wanted the experience and I really, I wanted to work with Ben Hinken. And so I just emailed him out of the blue. So I had a job at the time um, I could have stayed if I wanted, but I wanted to do something different. So I sent an email out of the blue. So that's a little less normal, but uh, could work. So yeah, and I was I was lucky enough to be I was an undergrad uh, as a doing like volunteering in that lab, and it was actually it it's the same lab that I'm a grad student in right now. So at DU when Ben was still there. Um, that was the the course that I took was him. He taught a course on depression. I reached out to him and just asked him if he had any like research positions, which is totally normal to ask, or you can look on the website. Sometimes PIs will have websites and you can see like, are there any volunteer positions? And then uh, like during that time that Kate was talking about where the previous project coordinator was leaving to go on grad school, they then approached me to, to come on as a, as a project coordinator. Um, so I was lucky that things were all self-contained in that lab, but I think it could also be helpful that once you're volunteering and you have a, a good relationship with either other grad students um, or even the PI, that they usually have a good sense of where positions will be opening up either within a university or they also have colleagues at other universities who um, are like, hey, I'm, I need a a project coordinator do you know of anybody and then that could be an easy way to transition to another lab um, I've actually been seeing positions open up on Twitter too that I think that Twitter is actually a really great place to start networking and then also seeing how what are PIs discussing what are these big names in the field talking about and how they interact with one another but then they also put up like hey I have a post back opening do you know of anybody or I have a postdoc position. And so that can also be a good way to, to look at those positions. That was a really good question. 
Thank you. Yeah, of course. Let me look up some of the questions. So is it possible to finish a PhD in four years? Technically, you already kind of talked about that, but like, no, don't do it. Um, or would not recommend. It's a short amount of time. And then, uh, let's see. Oh, this is a great one. Um, what are some questions that you should ask your um, POI? Um, and the comment here is, I was assumed every lab does the same thing, has grad students funded and working on a specific study, but um, that's not the case. And then when, how, and should you reach out to former grad students of your potential mentor? So I don't know, Justin, do you wanna tackle that? Yeah, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> um, so yeah, there, there is a lot of variability between labs, uh, even within a university. Um, so like at, at the University of Denver, where I was previously at, um, most grad students were funded by their PI so that they didn't, there were only certain times when you would have to TA a course. Um, and that was really like a grading TA where you didn't do much of the lecturing and that was pretty much the norm. I know DU is like a smaller college. Um, then transitioning here to the U of I, there was a lot of more students were funded through teaching assistantships where you're basically the instructor for an entire course um, or like an assistant at our local clinic or things like that, that it was less likely to be funded by your PI. Um, and that can, that can vary and it can vary from year to year too, even if your PI may have had lots of experience with having a grant, having funding for graduate students, their next grant may not get funded and then they don't have the funds to be able to apply to graduate students. So, um, but there will always be in, at least my understanding is universities in like, my, within my experience, they'll say we can fund you for X amount of years. And that's like a guarantee that you'll either be a TA or you'll be like a research assistant. You'll be doing something and getting paid for it. Um, and even if you go past that, I know that there are other ways to get funding for it. Um, but there's lots of variability there. And I probably spent too much time answering that one question and I forgot the other ones that Kate had asked me. No, I think that was the main thing. Oh, oh should okay. you talk to um, former grad students of mm. PI? Yeah, and like what are questions you can ask your PI, potential PI, I think. Uh, I think it, it can depend. I think Twitter can be a nice way to like passively get in touch with graduate students. Um, but I think reaching out directly like with a cold email, that would only make sense if you talk to the PI and like on the phone, maybe you did a, a pre-interview or something and they're like, hey, yeah, reach out to my grad students. That's a perfect time to do it if you want to. Usually it's more typical either right before the weekend, the interview weekend, or right after that you can follow up with people, um, but it's not usually typical before the application process. Um, yeah, and you just wanna be careful of sending those emails um, it's great to ask questions, um, but also they're gonna probably report back to the PI. So make sure you're being as polite as possible and all of your interactions. I mean, with everyone, duh, but like <laughs> um, in particular when you're applying, like be a good person, don't be a jerk. Uh, everyone is gonna be 
not like you should be able to be yourself and feel like you can act like yourself, but um, everyone's probably going to be reporting on you. Um, mm -hmm. So they probably won't say anything other than this person was awesome. Um, sorry, George, I'm just going to out you. Um, I was like, oh, how did you like the grad student when George visited UIUC? And they were all like, he, we thought he was so great. And so, oh gosh. Um, <laughs> even I heard about you. Um, but yeah, so I assumed like everyone was talk it's the one time when it's like everyone might be talking about you um so just to kind of be aware of that but all good things um so yeah that's something to be aware of and um finally one last question uh again this is going to be a question that just you can answer Justin um which is what do you like about being a graduate student and is it worth it mm, that is that's going to be in my memoir my upcoming memoir why am I a grad student no, I'm just kidding. I'm not, I couldn't write a book. Uh, I think <laughs> it is, it's a different experience. Um, and I think each and every year I gain something new out of it. And when I think like, oh, I've got a good handle on where I want to go, then I am able to get a new experience or am involved in a new project. And I find that I really enjoy this new thing. Um, so I have really really enjoyed being a graduate student. Um, there have been, just like with, I think, regardless of the program, grad school is hard. And, but being involved in the lab that I'm in and being around the people that I'm in and having great supports both in and out of the department, um, that has been really great. And I've been able to grow as a person and also grow different experiences. Like I would not be able to do this with you all. Uh, and I think this is really important that I'm able to explore things that I'm interested in and research things and understand why things are the way that they are. Um, and I don't think I'd be able to do that in any other position. So I've, I've really enjoyed it so far, but maybe ask me after I have to apply for internship and we'll see, see if that changes. <laughs> no, just start right now. <laughs> um. Anyway, so I guess like we'll end on that note, unless anyone has anything else they want to ask, um, or you could also, I put in the chat, both Dustin and my email. Um, so you, you would like strongly encourage anyone to reach out if they have any questions or things they want more of an answer on. Um, I was going to, my cat knock things on the background. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was going to pop in for one quick second. Um, yeah. Because uh, I think all of this has been really helpful and definitely aligns with kind of what I've learned going through the process. Um, and I think another important thing that is not always like easy to take to heart, at least, is that the rejections are not a reflection of your self-worth or of how qualified you are to be a graduate student. Uh, my first time I applied, I had one interview and that was it. And it was kind of shaking to me you know because you you do things really well and you care about what you do and then you know you get all of these rejections so I would just say like don't worry about that don't take those things to heart um, especially right now with everything going on with COVID I think it's an exceptionally difficult year to be applying just because university budgets are going to be restricted most likely um, so really just kind of keep your head down keep working keep fighting the good fight and uh have faith that something good is going to come out of it at some point. Love that. That's really nice. 
Yeah, I said this to someone once, and I feel like I stand by it, even though it's a little, it's like, it's a little bit like finding your mentor and getting accepted is a little bit like dating. Um, you can be a perfect match on paper, but you just, like, they might not accept you. Um, and you'll find people who got accepted to programs you didn't. Um, actually, for example, I just found out George uh, got into, got in and is working with the mentor who I applied to. And I think oh before that, I know, um, <laughs> this process, I would have been like, what does he have that I don't? And like, the, it's like we're different applicants and we bring different things to the table. And so um, I applied and I had a lot of overlap with a lot of other applicants. And so they're gonna accept you in some programs where someone who might look better on paper than you might get rejected. It's a little bit of a coin flip in some ways. And wherever you end up is probably gonna be the best fit for you. Um, I know that's the case with me. I got accepted in a lot of programs I was super excited about, and it felt like kind of a dream come true after having a round where I got one interview and didn't get in. So um, it's always good for me to hear about some other people who deal with these rejections. So um, yeah, so it's not a perfect metaphor, but there's a match for you somewhere. Um, and if you really want to go to grad school, it might take a few tries, um, but you if it's something you're really passionate about, you'll find a way. Yeah, I don't, I don't have much to, much to add really. That it, I think that there's, there's so much that is out of your control, and oftentimes it's even out of the mentor's control. That who is able to accept students, who is able to take students, and then, well, one person got a student in this area, so then they can't take a student. It's just all. Um, Again, I'm going to start getting frustrated again. So thanks for bringing that up. Uh, being so hopeful, I was I like, find a way. I know you, and you will. And I think that if if you're able to, that if the, if one round doesn't work, it is definitely okay to take another year and apply again. Um, you'll have more experience. You'll have more understanding. You'll be able to maybe pick up on things that you could have done better the first time. Um, and then if that's not the case, it gives you a chance to reevaluate what are the things that I'm, I'm really passionate about. And maybe there is another way that I can still get to that point um, without having to go through this, this process again. Um, so yeah, you will find something that, that works for you. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. And um, again, reach out and can't wait to hear from you all. And we're excited to hear about your processes and what you end up deciding, whatever that's in. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>